I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. I really enjoyed interviewing today's guest. I think it was because I was picking up on the energy, enthusiasm and buzz emanating from someone who is running a startup business. Mitch Blazer, the CEO of Mosaic, has done this before, and it's his clarity of vision and purpose that shines through our discussion. He has the benefit of experience to know what he would do differently, and he also has a very clear idea of how to leverage the advantages of a single clean balance sheet with new investors and no legacy risk, and equally as important to Mitch, a brand new enterprise with no legacy systems, technology or culture. The prospects of the post-COVID world of emerging risk are what are firing Mitch and his team of specialty underwriters up, but overall it's Mitch's irrepressible positivity and confidence that is most infectious. Listen on to see what I mean. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Mitch, thank you so much for giving up some of your time. You must be incredibly busy. You're building a whole new business. So why don't we start off with an easy question? Tell us all about your vision for Mosaic. Thanks, Mark. Vision is a very important part of the way it's you build any kind of a company. And sometimes it's as important to know what you don't want to do when you have that blank slate and an opportunity to create something fresh. And I always had a bunch of expressions that guide me. And one is that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you don't want to do the same thing over and over again. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So it's good to have a sense of where you want to end up. And very often in the insurance business, we find that we're driving into the future looking at our rearview mirror. So we wanted to avoid those kinds of pitfalls and think about a new model, something where we could create a structure that would have a profitable impact on the business and the industry, regardless of the market cycle. Not a cycle play. This was was never thought of in that context, but one where the combination of the businesses that we would be in with the people that we would be in are able to have a combined ratio, let's call it with an eight handle, regardless of the cycle. The other thing is, and coming back to the vision and the name, is 
taking what we thought might be the called the best bits of the insurance industry and how we would bring them together with the syndicate as a centerpiece, Lloyd's, and then the underwriting hubs in geographies around the world that could distribute capacity into those local markets. So that was kind of the core part of the structural aspect of the vision. The syndicate gave us the ability to leverage capital because of the gearing at Lloyd's and to be able to spread the risk to these various jurisdictions where we would be able to recruit highly talented underwriters that are already in those geographies and writing the lines of business that we felt would be relevant in the current economies and even more relevant in the future economies. And we can talk more about them later in terms of the lines of business. And then the last important pillar would be to take advantage of not having a legacy balance sheet on one hand, especially from what's gone on in the market, even pre-COVID in terms of social inflation, but in terms of infrastructure, to be able to build a technology platform that would give us a advantage in the marketplace, leverage our talented underwriters, potentially create a insure tech type platform that would support the business into the future. So those are the main elements that went into the vision and how we came up with this model and pursued those specific lines of business with the people and the technology elements, a very important part of it. So in order to get those consistently sub 100 or you know low 90s or whatever targets combined ratios, you've got to get the best showing of business. And in order to do that, you've got to be a leader or you've got to be able to differentiate yourself in some way. So is that the strategy? Obviously, it's specialty insurance. So you want to be the most specialist in some of these specialties or giving some of the coverage that others won't give? So that's a great point. And I think that when you look at the market that we're in, the highly specialized niche market, a lot has to do with the talent that you attract and their recognition and reputation and credibility in the marketplace for underwriting those particular products. They have built-in followings effectively because they have a somewhat unique talent. Many times they get buried in big companies where the large lines of property cat or U.S. liability business kind of take up the attention and the smaller lines, even though they're profitable year in and year out, don't have the visibility that the bigger lines have. Also, they don't have the volatility as well. So we did not want to be in that camp. We were much more focused on the niche areas, the talent of the people, shining a light on that effectively. But particularly, as I mentioned, in the relevance of the climate that we're in economically and around the world and where things are going. If you think about just a couple of our products, political violence, cyber. As soon as I say the names, you think about, oh my God, what's going on in the world? That's the kind of thing that we thought about. We also believe that the model itself will allow us to be profitable because Lloyd's brings a number of benefits to us that you wouldn't necessarily get or wouldn't be able to get if you started a balance sheet in another part of the world without the benefit of the Lloyd's advantages, particularly in terms of capital gearing, where we can write business on a $1 basis from a capital and premium standpoint. Whereas if I had to start a balance sheet 
and get AM Best, S&P, and all the other rating agencies aligned, use others' capital models, have enough capital to support the lines I'm writing, plus most likely have to write things like property cat, et cetera. I would need at least a dollar and a quarter for a dollar. So our model is very much based on ROE. So if you have profitable business, talented underwriters, you leverage them with technology, and you keep the capital actually lower, you have a chance to have a higher ROE and create a more profitable entity. So that's very much where we see our advantage in the market is that focus and the support of the model itself in building out the combination of taking lead lines through our syndicate, controlling those lead lines, controlling the underwriting and controlling the claims process. Our underwriters always have a lead line. How much we might retain of that will vary, but it'll be across the board. So we will eat our own cooking. That's another advantage that we have. So our underwriting hubs, which some might think are like MGAs, but they're not MGAs. They are owned. They have their lead line coming through the syndicate. But when they spread what they underwrite to the local markets, they're spreading the same thing that we're taking on board at the syndicate level. Again, eating our own cooking, there's not adverse risk selection or things of that nature as part of our model. So these are some of the key advantages and differentiators that we see that come from our model and from the people. And again, I think the technology aspect is another advantage. And it comes from the timing that we're entering this market from a technology standpoint is another huge advantage. It's not one that existed even three years ago. It's been evolving. We know we've been talking about AI and all these other technologies, but how has anyone really put it to use on the scale that we're talking about? Because infrastructure's in the way, it's difficult to do because people haven't thought about how to put these components onto a single platform. We have that opportunity. And frankly, on top of the tailwind that COVID has given to the insurance market, it's done the same thing with technology. And not just for the insurance business, but for all of us around the world. Yeah, that's interesting. Greg Hendrick was on the show and he said, these days, a no tech legacy is as valuable as a no claims legacy. Because certainly in 1986 or in 1993 or in the class of 2001 or indeed the class of 2005, no one ever really spoke of having no technology legacy. You know, they're all still sitting around the same fax machine as everybody else had been before and they were doing business in the same way. How specifically are you going to be trying to enhance that? Presumably these days, no one would start a business where you have a server in the corner of your office. (laughs) That's correct. You know, everything's on the cloud. So are you almost defining your business as an insurtech? Obviously, if you look at some of the insurtech IPO valuations of the last 12 months, maybe that's clever positioning on your part, Mitch. So I think there's a number of answers to that question. And our goal isn't to be an insurtech, but our goal is to really take advantage of modern technology in supporting our underwriting. So a byproduct of that could surely be an insure tech type of product platform. But that's not the initial goal. Going back to when we were at Ironshore, one of the things we focused on was how to enhance processing and how to take the cost out of processing, where the, the little value adds you get out of you know, the processing aspect of our business, which is true for everybody in the insurance industry. And it's been a bugaboo of mine for the last hundred years that I've been in the business. And what we thought about is enhancing efficiency. We brought that all together in one place. We use labor arbitrage and lots of 
black belt sigma type techniques to make the process more efficient. And then the idea was to automate that. But what happens in the world, and this is in 2011, so just to give a time check, that's when we started it. Nowadays, you don't even have to go there because you can just create a platform and pop these technologies on it that will support, in this example, automated processing end to end. And if we want to change it out because somebody came up with something better, it's easy to do. These are very modular things. They're not ingrained into the infrastructure. They're not integrated into the infrastructure. So it gives us a lot more flexibility. You're not an insure tech in the sense that you're trying to build your own technology. You're far more an enthusiastic adopter of the technology that's out there and is to be developed, and you're happy to partner with people who've got new ideas. Correct. And I would also add to that, if you think about the technology in pillars, that in today's world, the front end using AI, artificial intelligence, and the algorithms can be built that specifically align with our lines of business, the lines that we're underwriting that support the specific underwriters. So rather than getting a submission and scurrying about to try to figure out, I better Google this and search for that and bring in external data factors, the front end is doing it all for you and delivering it to your desktop. And as an underwriter, if there's something else you want to do, you're effectively teaching the algorithm to include it next time. So it gets smarter. So your front end is getting smarter and smarter aligning to your underwriting. You still need the technical underwriter capabilities and decision-making, but a lot of the underwriting support aspects of the manual aspects of might consider technical because you're doing it online, but the gathering of that data is being done for you as well as a lot of the analytics. So that's like a front end pillar. Then there's the what tentacles connect all the bits and pieces of the underwriters from around the world, working on the same lines of business, providing uh, certain capabilities into the market and creating third-party relationships. We think those tentacles will be largely blockchain-based and will allow our capital partners as well as ourselves to understand where we sit on any risk at any time. So if there's a loss that you read about in the paper, you could immediately find out if you were on it or not, instead of waiting for a border row for a month or three months, you will be able to understand your aggregations. And maybe you'll say, hey, you know, can you send me a little bit more of the political risk because I'm light on that, but you know, I'm long on MA or whatever it might be. So you can balance your portfolio in real time and you'll understand the dynamics of what that partnership brings to the table. And the technology will give you linkages and capabilities you may not even have in your own firm. So that's a second pillar. It's very important to us because of that connection to distribution and the local capacity distribution that we're focused on. And then the third pillar is the processing I talked about earlier, which is to be able to allow automated processing from an end-to-end basis. After all, so much of what we do on processing is creating error conditions by doing that and then reporting on it. There's no reason why the bulk of that can't be automated. And there are new technologies now that really enhance and enable that. I wonder whether a day ever goes by in the market when someone isn't talking about innovation. In an industry dominated by generic products, insurance businesses are understandably looking for some sort of advantage, some way to differentiate themselves that will make them a more attractive proposition. It's the right ambition 
But are they looking in the right places? Because if they do manage to find a smart product or technology or service, the business benefit it delivers will usually be pretty short-lived for the simple reason that it can and will be copied. Case in point, who doesn't have a terrorism or cyber product live or in the works? But what if there was already the makings of a completely unique advantage hiding in plain sight? The team at Free Partners believe the only true differentiator you will ever have is your brand. It's yours and yours alone. Free Partners helps insurance businesses answer the question, why you? So that your brand becomes the engine for business growth. If creating a sustainable business advantage is what you're after, why not check out their three-step standout grow strong plan at freepartners.com. So you're someone who's always borne down on expenses as you always must. What sort of percentage, combined ratio, expense ratio percentage might you be able to drive out of the business? And what's the balance between the technology tools that are about better underwriting, using the AI to help triage and score your risks before they come before the underwriter, perhaps, and someday um, underwrite some of them automatically at the right price? So there's two sorts of savings. One is the pure expense ratio saving, and the other is the saving by having a lower loss ratio than you would otherwise have by being a better underwriter. So what sort of percentage on each side do you think you're sort of targeting now that you've got this totally clean slate? So when we put our numbers together, our financial planning and so forth, we did not want to give ourselves, let's call it an unfair advantage to what our goals might be. So we've been more conservative in our viewpoint. The product lines we chose have had a historical level of profitability because of the knowledge and technical skills of the underwriters. They tend to be sub 50. So it's a question of how low do you want to go? And is this the right way to think about it? So we wouldn't assume from that, that we're going to gain loss pick type advantages right away. We do believe that over time, it'll make us a lot more efficient, obviously. So that helps the expense ratio, but also a lot smarter in what we're doing because we're getting the benefit of a partnership with technology as opposed to technology becoming, you know, kind of the burden of having to feed it as opposed to it feed you. So there will be a definitive loss ratio advantage. We have not figured into our projections, but we do expect that there will be one. And I don't know how big an advantage that would be because I could say it's fairly large, but our underwriters have done a great job historically. They're very experienced. So the how much additional leverage they get out of the technology is to be determined. But I would say, you know, if I had to pick a number, everybody says pick a number, I would say it's probably a solid five points. And I would say the same thing about the expense ratio. It's part of our confidence in delivering, you know, once we've built the machine, this is not some model you build in six weeks or six months. It will take a few years to get ourselves to the point where we're growing and humming, so to speak, at the same time. And that's why we could talk more about it. Having patient capital that understood what our objectives were was very important in building the model and the firm. But I think the expense ratio side will be similar because of the efficiencies that we'll get from the pass-through processing, from the front-end support of the underwriter, and for the communication and distribution of information through the blockchain-type structures with partners and internally. Eventually, a lot of the processing automation will give us even a bigger advantage in being able to comply with Deloitte's requirements 
and maybe even lead them and be a model for them in their blueprint aspirations. Well, we should talk about that later on. I'd love to go back to the market itself. You said this isn't a cycle play, but obviously it's not bad timing though, Mitch. Uh, (laughs) But anecdotally, we see that there isn't actually much of a shortage of capital. There's been a shortage of profitability and investors have demanded their investments to produce better profitability than they've been delivering in the last four or five years. I was wondering if perhaps in some of the classes you're targeting, that's not necessarily the case, that there might be capacity in an aggregate level globally. But perhaps in some of the classes you're looking at, there might still be shortage of capacity that's actually available to brokers. Do you think that is the case? We don't think about capacity as the market tends to think about it with big swags of capital. Those big tranches of capital are in the market or come in the market to support property cat plays and you know, large U.S. liability type businesses and, and the combination of both. We're not in that model. So we're not looking for a lot of capital. But the capacity point you're making in our business lines is really true. There's a shortage, but the shortage comes more from two things. One is the talent pool. And the second is that this is a very fast changing product set the cyber business, the political violence business, the political risk business, every day something is happening that affects our business. So you have to be dynamic about it and you need the people. And as I've been mentioning, the technology support to make that work. Plus those people having the relationships and knowledge in the marketplace, the credibility that goes with that, they can deliver to the let's call it the gaps of coverage with solutions for clients that would not come out of a commodity type product line. You have to be very bespoke and you have to be on top of what's happening in the world. Who would have thought the U.S. would be a very big political violence market at this point in time? A little over a year ago, we wouldn't have thought about it, you know, pre-COVID, let's say. Well, we didn't pick that line of business because of that. But it is another example of a tailwind that we didn't expect. The COVID market, so to speak, is providing different types of tailwinds. It's not like a hurricane. We didn't have a three-day explosion of Mother Nature or some other type of explosion where you can assess the damage and say, here's what happened, and now let's figure out what it costs. This has been ongoing, as we know, for a year already, and it's not done. Last I looked, most people are still wearing masks. So we believe that the tailwind that we didn't expect is going to continue probably for another couple of years as it picks up steam from the litigation. And as people come back to the realities of a, I'm not going to say normal, but more normalized world, there'll be a lot of pieces to pick up, which will impact the insurance industry. Are there any segments of the market that you feel still haven't quite got to the level of rate that you'd be hoping for and that you might be you're sort of waiting on the sidelines that you're expecting them to turn at some point in the future? Well, not in our product lines. You know, again, our product lines are very relevant to the world economies today and what's happening really in the future. This is not a, a rearview mirror kind of product line set. These are things that are dynamic, transactional liability, you know, the M&A businesses somewhat exploding right now. Every month seems to be a new record. Cyber, I just say the word and everybody gets a little chill and thinks about the last phishing email they got. 
political risk, you know, governments behaving badly. Well, maybe they haven't even started to get there yet until they have to collect back the funds that they've lost because of COVID. Environmental liability, again, the world climate control and change and all the impacts that we're seeing, that's not going to slow down. And the addressing of it by the world is only going to make it more relevant in the future. And of course, the lines we've chosen in both financial institutions and PI are very narrowly channeled into the niche areas that we believe will continue to have relevance and need the technical expertise we have to address it. So I don't see that so much from our standpoint. I do believe, and I would do the same thing, that the legacy carrier marketplace is bleeding in the reserves as they can, started in 2020, you know, over the first quarter, second quarter, it will continue in 2021. I think it will continue on because as more cases and litigation and losses come to light, that number is only going to go up. I don't think anybody's put down such gigantic reserves that they're never going to have to revisit them. That will continue to impact the rate environment. How dramatically more, I don't know, but we are very comfortable that with rate adequacy at the moment and having the tailwind, as I keep saying, we didn't expect. We've had this kind of consensus of an industry loss from COVID, for example, of 50 to $70 billion. Do you think that that's just too early to tell, or do you think it's likely to be higher than that? You know, I don't have a number. I just have enough knowledge about where we are, as I mentioned, the bleeding in of those reserves. To be able to say it's over is premature. To be able to say how big can it get, it can get pretty big because the government's in the major domiciles where these exposures exist. And let's pick the U.S. as the poster child for that. We'll have litigation and look at the insurance industry as another backstop. The juries and the government support will not favor the insurance companies. They will favor the plaintiffs. So there will be more to come. It's just hard to say how much. I presume we're just nowhere near apportioning any kind of blame for all this. We're still dealing with it. Correct. And I believe on top of that, the quantification of what has happened isn't fully known either and is still developing. So there's more to come from that as well as the litigation for what we do know about. And the combination could be very large. Mitch, you mentioned before that you thought it was more perhaps overall industry reserve strengthening, not just for COVID, but for everything and whatever sins of the soft market passed you thought it might be a bit more of a pay-as-you-go type reserve strengthening? Yes, I think social inflation had begun before COVID. In fact, when we were thinking about the rate environment for our products, we were already seeing the impact on the market of the realization that social inflation was impacting reserves across the board. And therefore, rate adequacy had to be improved in order to support the businesses going forward. We saw that before COVID. COVID, just like with everything else, has accelerated, accentuated, and in this case, added gigantic layers to that problem. I'd love to go into that relationship you've got with third-party capital. You mentioned about syndicating some of those risks that you're leading. And you even said perhaps in local markets as well, not just within the Lloyds market. Would you be the sort of thing where you might be actually most intentionally trying to assemble consortia that would sit behind your lead so that the broker knows that they come to you and maybe you've got a $20 million line but they can get 100 
swung straight away and then you can be really relevant and solve the, most of their clients' problems with that kind of thing. Is that the sort of play that you've got? Or is it more about capital or you know wanting to make money on profit commissions or seeding commissions and that kind of thing? And so as I mentioned, we're totally aligned with anybody we do business with, whether it's a consortium, industry third-party capital, alternative capital, anyone we do business with will know that we're eating our own cooking, taking the lead line and controlling the underwriting. It's not about risk selection adversely for third-party capital. So that's part of the mantra, the underpinning. The other thing that goes with that is that we will be able to create consortiums and third-party capital structures that allow us to punch above our weight, to take your point. And in some of these business lines, we've already done that. So the ability to assemble that support comes with a track record of having done it. The people that are coming in to lead these lines of business and that are already here have done that before and are doing it again. So we do believe that the consortium construct, as well as industry capital, will come in and support us in that way. And it'll be a combination in of whether it's on the reinsurance side or whether it's the third party capital industry side or consortiums through what we can pull together through Lloyd's on a global basis. We will be able to create that kind of capacity, and we will be able then to distribute that capacity into the local markets where we operate. So we have underwriters already, and it's based upon their capabilities in our lines of business. We already have underwriters sitting in Chicago, New York, Bermuda, London, Hong Kong, Singapore. We'll probably add Europe. We'll probably add another location or two in America. And it's really based upon where we see the opportunity to take our set of products or some subset of them and distribute them into those local markets by having this global capacity and being able to take advantage of having our capital consolidated, centralized in the syndicate. So we don't have to go around popping new balance sheets into every jurisdiction. We can leverage the balance sheet we have, a single balance sheet, which has fantastic gearing, and then our focus is on ROE and creating profitability because our mantra as a startup and with the people we're attracting is we're all owners. This is about an ownership culture. And if you own it, if you have a piece of the action and you're thinking about everything you do as an owner, then that's how you're going to focus your time and your attention, your underwriting from the bottom line perspective whether it's expenses, whether it's the risk selection, top line is not the driver for us. Bottom line is, and that's aligned with this ownership culture that we very much focused on having, developing, and growing. Well, Mitch, I've already read that you, know, you definitely had plans for operations in Bermuda. Obviously, you're, you must be in London, the US. You've mentioned different locations in the US and in Asia. I was going to ask you whether there was any particular order of priority. So is it right to assume from what you've just said that actually you're going to go wherever the client demand is and wherever you presumably Lloyd's has a license and you can got a good business case for having an underwriter down in whichever territory, I presume. You're kind of agnostic. We're agnostic to the actual geographic spread. I mean, and again, what did COVID do? It accelerated the virtual world. So does anybody really know or care that much about where people are located today because of COVID? So this just plays right into our model. It was never the intention, of course, but it does. Yes, we want our underwriters to be active in their capabilities in the specific lines that they write. 
am able to distribute that capacity into that jurisdiction. And if they have that capability and they're talented, we want them on the team. So it's kind of a little bit of self-selection and it's a little bit of our targeted opportunity to be able to take advantage of our model, regardless of where the underwriter might be located. This is an important feature for us is to be able to do that. And our goal would be in five years that we're top three in all of our lines of business. I would say that you also have to think of our lines of business as being global. Maybe the leader is in one place, but the underwriters will be coming from the jurisdictions and the places where that business is. And most of our businesses will be in most of our geographies. You mentioned about having patient capital behind you. I hear that a lot. I think everyone says that when they're just starting. I suppose no one wants to say that their capital wants to exit in year four or something. Can we go into their expectations? You know, when you sit down with your business plan with them, what is their sort of appetite for that kind of risk and the sort of time frame that they're looking at? So let's start with who are the capital providers? We have the management team has taken a, I'd say a sizable percentage of over 5% of the company. We have a strategic partner, which is Hanover Re, and they are very strategic with us and they're a minority partner. And then we have been fortunate to find Golden Gate Capital. Golden Gate is a private equity firm with $17 billion of capacity based out of San Francisco. What their funds and the way their funds operate is they're perpetual funds. So there's a big distinction between a perpetual fund and let's call it a typical private equity fund. In most private equity environments, they will tell you and they'll tout that, well, we could monetize in seven years. Okay, that's great. And how old is the fund? Well, the fund is two years old. Well, now the seven years is five. Okay, and then how do I get to that point? Well, after about three years, we need to dress you up for sale. So we're going to stop investing and we're going to start making you look pretty to whoever's going to come and monetize. In a perpetual fund, they have no timeline or deadline for monetization. It could be 20 years. Most of it will depend upon management reaching a certain degree of maturation with the firm's development and being able to correlate that with the ownership to say, now's a good time. What we need is a new platform. What we need is to be public. What we need is a strategic relationship, the market opportunity, whatever dynamic has occurred. But we're more able to see that world and then do something about it than have the world do it to us. And that's a great benefit of long-term capital. And the perpetual fund is real. So that's why we talk about it and why we were so happy to have them as a partner, because we believe that what we're building is brick by brick. We don't see this as make a gigantic bet on earthquake or hurricane or whatever. And if it happens, okay, bad luck. (laughs) If it doesn't happen, super, we just made a lot of money. Let's get out of here. This is a long-term play. Our partners will know that we're here for a long-term. And that's another benefit. We're representing capability and financial security to our clients. And that's a critical side benefit of the relationship that we'll have with our capital providers. If you describe it as much more like a pension fund than it is a private equity fund, and you're more likely to be kicking them out of bed than the other way around. 
Correct. Obviously, as those are joint decisions that we don't uh, <laughs> looking to kick anybody anywhere, especially out of bed. I would say to you that that long term aspect is probably better than a pension fund, because as far as I know, in pension funds, insurance is a tiny little sliver of what they do. And a pension fund can be fickle about whether or not they really want it or not, even though they could hold it forever. This is really geared toward a long-term build and long-term hold, both from their standpoint in fund management and our standpoint in building this company. What's your own sort of aspirations? For example, it seems the way you describe it, you could probably be a private company forever. It seems to be more and more the case, particularly if you you know you needed more capital to grow and you got more partners, more perpetual style capital partners. But what's your own view? Do you think you could be going public? Obviously. In this class of 2020, we've had a huge variety. We've had public from day one company as well. Right. Well, it, there's the SPACs and the, uh, you know, the IPOs and all the different options for monetization. We would, of course, look at everything. It's my nature because uh, that's what I've done my whole career is to look at what's out there, what the opportunities are. We're not going to be put on blindfolds. But our goal would be much more long-term. We really believe the value creation The longer we take to get to that point, the more value we'll have created and therefore the more value in the marketplace. Now, what's the timeline on that? It could be seven years before you reach that maturation. And it may be a few more years after that before you actually do something. But the world changes so rapidly. I can't predict how capital will flow and what the opportunities will be, where the technology aspect of what we're doing could take us So there's so many different routes that can converge outside in and inside out. So it's very hard to put a time limit on it. But the idea and the concept of being able to build brick by brick, that's what really is the advantage that we'll have in creating value. In terms of building, long-term building, you've done this before. You've now got the benefit of all that experience sitting, you know, with such a long career behind you. And now you're looking forward again and building something from scratch mentioned about culture. What sort of culture are you trying to build? Obviously, you've got these really highly experienced underwriters who are the sort of people who walk towards risk rather than away from it and towards difficult risk. What else are you going to be trying to build? Well, starting with your point about having done this before and what we've learned, the first expression I'll use there is expect the unexpected, because that's what will happen. And that's why I keep saying that the world is evolving so quickly, things are moving so fast. We want to be on top of that, ride the wave, make things happen. We want to have some degree of controlling our own destiny that way by riding that wave, whether it's the technology wave, the product waves, the opportunities of staying very focused on our businesses. And if you think about that, the kind of people you want to attract want to be a part of that environment. People generally want to be part of a growth environment to begin with. People want to be relevant in the marketplace. People want to feel that they have some sense of ownership in what they're doing, that they're not just subjected to what the other guys are doing, sitting down the hall, putting down big lines that blow them up. They want to be a part of this. They want to be a part of the decision-making. They want to be part of the profitability, and they want to participate in that. So that is the attraction of Mosaic. What we're doing is building an environment that allows that to happen. Everybody will be a part of that. Everybody will have some ownership. Everybody will feel like an entrepreneur. 
by the way, you know, I do a lot of work with colleges and GW in particular. And I'll tell you, that's what all young people want to do today. Entrepreneurial spirit in my lifetime has never been higher. Everybody wants to be creative. Everybody wants to participate. Everybody wants to make something happen. And we want those kinds of people to be a part of our team. And they are, and they will be. So that's our attraction. It's also what they want. And it makes for a good match. And we build a culture around that and empower our people. Diversity and inclusion isn't just an expression for us. We're really focused on that. You know, during International Women's Day, I spoke to the team and I said, we are in a recruiting phase. We are building this company. Everybody should have this at the forefront of their thinking and not just looking for their old chum or whatever it is. This is time to build with DNI at the forefront. So these are the kinds of things that bring people together and create a cultural environment. And that's our focus. How do you get that balance between the creativity and the control to make sure that you haven't got too many mavericks? Or particularly when you're at the cutting edge of risk, of course, when we literally, as you say, we don't know what's going to happen and we're trying to ensure new risk and no one's done it before. Again, how do you get that balance between the creativity and obviously the control that you certainly need to make sure you stay solvent? I don't worry too much about that balance. There are controls, underwriting controls. Risk management, of course, is a part of our business. And we think about that everywhere we are. And whether you're sitting in in Asia, whether you're sitting in America, whether you're sitting in Bermuda, there are certain pathways with risk management and controls that are part of every insurance business and are a part of ours. It starts with two things. One is the technology providing the information and the other is having the eyeballs on the problem and seeing you know, what the opportunities are versus the risk taking and things of that nature. But other than that, I wouldn't want to stifle anyone's creativity. We want people thinking outside that box. We want to bring new ideas and new ways of doing business, and we want to bring new solutions to our clients. So no reason to stifle creativity. We want to encourage it and empower it. Mitch, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's been really wide ranging. It sounds really exciting what you're doing. And I hope this serves as a beacon to everybody who want to collaborate with you on technology to come and talk to you to offer you following capacity, get involved with consortia. There's a whole lot to be talking about. So I hope we'll be talking about it again on the Voice of Insurance sometime soon. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And I can talk about Mosaic anytime you like. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll take you up on that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at 
www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.